It's good to see everybody here this morning. Uh, we will spend the preponderance of our time, or the majority of our time, in uh, chapter 2. Uh, but before we start that, last week we uh, got through the end of chapter 1, except we really didn't spend any time on the final verse. Uh, because that final verse um, concerns the return of Christ, which is a major theme that will emerge uh, in the remainder of the book, I think that it behooves us to take a look at it. So we will look at uh, chapter 1 and verse 10, or we'll read 9 and 10 to give it a little bit of context, and then we will launch into chapter 2, and I will do my best to finish everything that we uh, read as we get through that section of chapter 2. So let's pray together as we start. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it teaches us with regard to who you are and how you've dealt with us and are dealing with us in the world. And we thank you also that it teaches us how to live in a way that is pleasing uh, to you. We pray that we would uh, be diligent as we study your word. We pray that you would help us uh, to learn truthfully and to learn truth. And we ask for your guidance in our study in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we are, as I said, in 1 Thessalonians. We'll read the first two verses uh, just to help us wind up from last week and hopefully not spend too, <clears throat> too much time on this and then move into chapter 2. So verse 9 of chapter 1. For they themselves, that is the people of, of uh, Macedonia and Achaia, they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And so, in this section from verse 4 to verse 10, Paul has walked them through a period of time that began with their conversion. We know of your election because we have seen the fruit of faith in your life. And then he takes that... Uh, testimony through to the to the reports that have gone out about them in other places and then he describes them as the people who are waiting for the return of the sun and so there are a couple of things that I want you to notice about this um, as we think just about verse 10 so first of all recognize that their religion is a personal one sometimes we use the word religion to think of of something that's not personal, or some people use the term in that way. And so people will say, well, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. Um, but they were religious, and they were gathered together into an institutionalized church, if you will. But their religion was also personal. And so they had not adopted a new philosophy of life, but they had... Um, they had uh, this new devotion to the Son of God. And so it was, to, it was the Son that had saved them, and it was for the Son that they were waiting. Now the fact that this was a personal devotion is <coughs> emphasized by the way they refer to the Son, as, uh, or the way he names the Son as Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Growing up, I was uh, a part of religious groups at times that emphasized that um, in some ways it was more spiritual to speak of Jesus just by his name, Jesus. And so don't 
talk of him as the Lord, don't talk of him as Christ or whatnot, just speak of him as Jesus. But really, that's not the way the New Testament does it. Actually, in the New Testament, we find that the language of the writers is very intentional about which names or titles they use um, for the Lord Jesus Christ. And typically, whenever Jesus is used by itself, that name is used by itself with no title, no modifier, so not the Lord Jesus, not Jesus Christ, but just simply Jesus. Normally the point is that we are looking back toward some event in the life of Jesus or we, uh, during his earthly ministry, or we are connecting in some way with the life uh, during his earthly ministry of Jesus. And so the emphasis of Paul here seems to be the one that we are looking uh, for to return is the same one that rose from the dead. And so he's drawing that connection between the risen uh, Jesus, the one who died and rose, and the one who will return someday. Now, interestingly, in the passage regarding um, the return of Christ in chapter 4, Paul does the same thing. So if you look down in chapter 4 and verse 14, um, Paul writes, Therefore, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, will God, uh, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And so once again, he uses the name Jesus by itself, which actually is not that common in the epistles. It's very common in the Gospels because it's the earthly life of Jesus. But, um, but it's not very common to use the name Jesus alone in the epistles. But Paul's emphasis there once again is... Jesus died and rose, an event from the light, his earth, his uh, life, and uh, his incarnation, you know what I'm trying to say. Um, and the one that died and rose is the same one that is going to return, and when he returns, those who have died um, in him are going to return with him. And so the one that died and rose is the same one that is going to return, and so there is an intentional use and a, a personalized use of the, uh, of the name of Jesus as, referring, as the way of referring to the Son of God. But all of this emphasizes that ours is a personalized faith. We have a theology. We may be said to have a philosophy. We have institutions and forms. And all of those are important, but all of those things are important because they point us to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so it is a, a personal relationship um, that we have. So we are waiting for him. We are waiting for the Son from heaven. And then the other way that the Son is described here is he is the one that, has, uh, that, um, that was raised from the dead. Now this is important because of what Paul has just said. They have turned to God from idols to serve the God who is, um, or, or uh, to serve the living and true God. And so the idols that they had forsaken were false and dead. They had turned to the true and living God. And he reinforces that thought by saying, not only is our God true and living, but he is, he's actually the one who has conquered death. And so he takes it a step forward and speaks of the one that they are looking for, the one that they now worship and serve 
as the one who has risen from the dead. And so these are the important thoughts with regard to the return of Christ that Paul is referring here to. Now, just like we talked about with regard to election, um, which Paul talked about in verse 4, it's interesting that these were new Christians. Um, They had only... um, They'd only been converted uh, several months ago, and Paul had preached there only for a few months at most. And yet the, uh, the idea, the doctrine of the return of Christ was something that they seemed very familiar with. We'll see later that there's a lot of confusion that has developed around it, but um, it's something that they had been taught about quite a bit. Um, the thought of the second coming of Christ is not something that the church should ignore. I'm afraid that sometimes we are guilty of neglecting it. And that may be because we don't like being associated with some of the crazy ideas that are out there. You know, the folks that try to say, you know, Jesus is coming back on such and so date and that sort of thing. And all of the dates that are so far have been wrong. Um, and, and sometimes catastrophically wrong for the state of the souls of people. Um, You probably have known folks, as I have, that got very excited about predictions that Jesus was going to return in 1988 or whatever. Uh, And the the 1988 one is very vivid to me because I knew a man that got very excited about all that, had not been in church, though his family was for years and years, started attending church, got involved, got very excited because he had to be ready. Christ was going to return in 1988, and um, in case you didn't know, he didn't. Um, and um, this, this man um, was very disillusioned by all that, um, and sadly so. And once again, he had not been... Um, had not demonstrated faith until he got excited about that, and once those prophecies proved not to be accurate. He uh, once again abandoned the church, may not have, I, I wouldn't speculate on the state of his soul, but, um, but people are harmed by those kinds of things. So because of that, there may be a tendency for us to say, well, I don't want to be associated with some of these um, bizarre ideas regarding the return of Christ, so we won't talk about that too much. Too many of the books that are out there are a little bit insane um, to use a charitable term <laughs> I need to be careful I'm in the mood this morning um, but but nonetheless what we see from first Thessalonians that is, is that even for these new Christians this was an important teaching and the reason it was an important teaching is that they were hurting people they were a persecuted people and so it wasn't just that they were curious to be able to put together all the details and figure out what was going on They were a persecuted people, and it wasn't a form of escapism, but they were a persecuted people who were interested in knowing that there's something beyond this life, and that Christ is going to return. He's going to return in justice and righteousness. Evil is going to be put down, and uh, God is going to prevail. And so they look forward to the return of Christ, who would deliver them from present wrath as well as from the wrath, as is emphasized here, that is to come. And so for hurting people, the idea of the return of Christ is an important and a a very precious uh, doctrine. So 
Um, so that's, I think, why it was important to the Thessalonians. Any questions as we wrap up chapter 1? Moving to our main theme for the day, then chapter 2. Let's read the first 12 verses um, of chapter 2 as I find the correct set of my notes. Okay. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, for with a, or with a, uh, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of our own children, of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we work night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses in God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Isn't it interesting here that um, um, Paul compares himself and the other missionaries both to a, a, a loving mother and a loving father? It's uh, interesting he uses both metaphors here within a few verses. Um, sometimes um, we're guilty of making misjudgments about people. So I read a biography recently that the early part of the biography centered um, our subject within a family where the father was kind of a ne'er-do-well. He was a snake oil salesman um, who uh, stayed for most of his life one step ahead of the law and of his neighbors. And like most uh, folks of that sort, sometimes, or many folks of that sort, sometimes he made a lot of money and did pretty well and then sometimes they were dirt poor and didn't have anything, just depending on how business and his relationship with the law and his neighbors was going. So during one period of time when he was doing pretty well, the family was actually able to, to afford a housekeeper. And so they had a, an older teenage uh, girl as a housekeeper, and the teenage boy in the family um, sort of took a liking to her, and it appeared to have been mutual and the girl's family became concerned and so they um, sent um, the, uh, the family that had hired the housekeeper a communication that they were more than happy that their daughter was able to uh, provide housekeeping services for them but they did not have any intention of allowing a romance to develop with their son because they thought that their daughter uh, would be able to find better prospects in, uh, with others. Um, the rejected young man that um, 
they were sure that they would be able to find a better economic opportunity for their daughter in the future. The rejected young man we know to history is John D. Rockefeller. <laughs> they misjudged. <laughs> it may not have worked out anyway. We don't, we don't know. But anyway, they misjudged. Now, in terms of the critics of uh, Paul here, this was not merely a misjudgment, but rather these were people that were out to destroy uh, Paul's missionary ministry. And so reading this letter, it's like hearing one side of a phone conversation. You, you only know the side that you're hearing, and so you, you don't necessarily know what's being said on the other end of the line. But reading Paul's defense of his ministry, um, we can sort of get some clues as to the kinds of things that were being said about Paul because we see the kinds of things that he's responding to. A couple of things that I think we can think about as we look at this. Um, as, as I look at, at Christians uh, today, we're not necessarily great about um, responding to criticism. And sometimes we're not great in the way that we criticize one another. Um, and just let me give a couple of generalized examples of this. The, the internet um, has become a brutal place in the way that Christians criticize one another. And I, I can give um, a personal example where something I wrote was used in ways that I didn't want it to. So several years ago, I wrote a book review of uh, a book that was um, written by Rick Warren in which I was fairly critical of what Rick Warren had written. Um, and I don't think Rick Warren is the worst guy in the world. I have disagreements, but he's not the worst guy in the world. So anyway, but I wrote this book review that was critical, and I still to this day, it's, you can find it online if you want. I don't disagree with anything that I wrote, but there were a couple of blog sites that picked up what I wrote and they used it in a way that to me was kind of embarrassing because they used it to, as a part of a really over the top criticism of him and his ministry. And, and I thought that the things they wrote were inappropriate, but of course, once I put my thing out there, you know, once you put something online, it's there forever. Um, and, and so that's the way sometimes Christians treat one another um, in those kinds of forums. Um, you see uh, groups and ministries that, um, that are critical in a way that it seems to take pleasure in um, tearing down pe either people with uh, a big name or takes pleasure in tearing down somebody that's localized to the critics. Um, to be honest, I'm thankful that I never was a pastor in the internet age because I didn't have to deal with that sort of thing. Um, it, it creates hardships that, um, that ministers and churches didn't used to have. And so uh, there's that side of things. On the, on the kind of the opposite extreme, we have a difficult time legitimately criticizing one another and, and interacting based on um, disagreements 
You know, it's almost as though if I disagree, and I, I'll use Wayne as an example, because Wayne and I chat a little bit, so I don't think he'll be bothered by this. Um, if he is, I'll hear about it afterwards. But, <laughs> but suppose, suppose Wayne and I have a disagreement on some small thing. So here's the way it has to go. Before I can say that I disagree with Wayne, I have to say, I know that Wayne is a true believer in Jesus Christ. I know that he loves Jesus Christ with all of his heart. I know that he's a faithful member of this church and a good elder for our church. I know that he treats his dogs well. I, I have to go through all these things, and then I say, but you know, Wayne is just wrong about the placement of that comma in Ephesians 4. <laughs> you know, and it, it's as though, it's as though I have to say I'm not challenging his love of Jesus Christ when I say, well, we disagree on this issue. And to me, that gets tiresome. Um, you know, why, why can't we say, you know, why, you know, it's not saying that somebody's a heretic or an apostate or uh, uh, that they've abandoned Christ if we have friendly disagreements on, on minor issues. Um, but sometimes debate is conducted in a way that sort of suggests that's the, that's the case. So we're, we're, we're not necessarily good at dealing with criticism. So I, I think that there are some things that we can learn here. Paul's dealing with a much more serious uh, type of attack. As, as we said, uh, these are folks that, um, that were attempting to destroy his missionary ministry. Uh, they had had him run out of Thessalonica when he was there. They had followed him to Berea and had him run out of Berea. And now they were trying to destroy the, fruits of his, the fruit of his ministry among the Thessalonians, as well as get word out to others that they should not listen to him. So thinking in general terms, um, there are other places that Paul um, faces critics. And it's interesting that in some places he responds to them, and in some places... He does not. So in Galatians, um, Paul had some severe critics there. And against them, he argues against the notion that his apostleship is inferior to those in Jerusalem. And so Paul, Paul um, is very contentious um, from the very opening of Galatians and says, I didn't get my gospel from Jerusalem. I'm not inferior to them. I am an apostle just like um, those in Jerusalem are, and so he he took up a strong defense of his own own apostleship. In Second Corinthians eleven and twelve, Paul argues against those that claim superior superior qualifications to to apostleship, and um, and and actually there uh, Paul goes through an exercise in which he says I'm going to engage in some foolishness here, and put forward my own qualifications. Um, and so he, he defends himself there. On the other hand, in the first chapter of Philippians, he expresses indifference about um, some of his opponents. He says some people are preaching the gospel because they, uh, out of uh, fellowship and love, and there are others that are preaching the gospel out of envy. They think that in their preaching, they are making my situation worse. But Paul says, I don't care. They're preaching the gospel, so it's all good. 
And so there he doesn't, he doesn't bother to defend himself against his critics. And I think there in Philippians that Paul gives us the clue as to, as to when it's important and when it's not. When attacks on his apostleship are on his missionary journey, journeys and activities were attacks on the gospel, then Paul was going to defend himself because the defense of himself was a defense of the gospel. But when the gospel was being preached even by his opponents, Paul said, they're preaching the gospel, I don't care. And that's a fairly healthy attitude to take with regard to those that might be critical of us. You know, there, there are types of criticism that may be personal, they may be hurtful in some ways, but at the end of the day, if they're not impacting um, the good of the church and the, the, the proclamation of the gospel, maybe it's better just to let them go. Um, that, w- that seems to be the attitude um, that Paul took with regard to these kinds of criticisms. Now, it's important to notice that in the passage that we read, that Paul calls upon the Thessalonians to remember what they had seen when he was there. Um, and so um, we see it in verse 1, for you yourselves know, in verse 5, uh, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know. In verse 9, for you remember, brothers. In verse 10, you are witnesses. And in verse 11, for you know. And so he calls upon them, yeah, you're hearing the claims of our critics. Remember what you saw. Remember what we said. Remember what happened when we were there. Now, here's what Paul didn't do. He didn't say, we need to tell these critics to not touch the Lord's anointed. Don't just tell the critics to shut up. He was willing to respond, and he responded by saying, you saw for yourselves the way we conducted ourselves and the message that we proclaimed. So, just all I ask of you, he's basically saying, is don't forget what you heard from us. And don't forget what you saw from us. If people are making these kinds of things up, then they will not bear up if you just remember what you saw with your own eyes and heard with your own ears. Um, In um, our world today, for many of us in the jobs that we work and so forth, there's an increased interest in transparency. And I think for the most part, that's probably a good thing. And transparency is so easy now because you can put all the information out on the Internet. Actually, I feel sorry for people that try to keep secrets because anything you do might be known tomorrow um, by the whole world. Um, People might not know your name today, but tomorrow they might know everything about what you did today. Um, So in terms of individual lives and businesses, Transparency has become um, a reality, and in bus- a lot of business practices, it's become an emphasis. And I, th- I think that it's a good idea for churches to embrace that. Um, and when you think about, uh, you know, looking beyond the walls of this church, when you think about ministries or charities or things that uh, you're considering supporting because you believe in the cause. Um, I think transparency is something that it always is a good idea to look at. If, 
if somebody wants to be secretive about their finances and then they want you to give them dollars, um, that might be um, uh, a red flag that um, that might not be the ministry you want to support. If that's the cause you're interested in, find another ministry that is very open with their books and the, um, the way they spend their money and, and the way they conduct themselves. So, um, so um, Paul here, with his emphasis on uh, what you saw, what you heard, what you know, um, in a day that was well before the internet, um, Paul couldn't find a good surfer in Thessalonica uh, to get the word out. But that was funny, you didn't laugh that time. Um, but um, but uh, well before modern communications, he nonetheless said our ministry was transparent. Pay attention to what you saw, what you heard, what you know. And um, that is good advice in our day as well. I've done all the talking for a long time. I really should stop and see if, if you have comments or thoughts that you want to add. Which verse that you were? Uh, ten. Oh, verse ten in chapter two. Okay. I mean, how can a person claim that, or is he being hyperbolic? I think he's speaking in terms of So they were accusing him of gross errors, and we'll talk a little bit about what some of those errors were in a minute. But he's saying, in contrast to what's being said, this is the way that we conducted ourselves. No. In regards to what they said, I didn't do that. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. So I was reading, I'm like, um, Paul, you can't say that. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's the thing. And, and in other places, certainly, Paul has a different assessment um, of himself. So you have to sort of balance those things. But here he's just saying, compare, with regard to what the critics are saying about him. Because it's, it's <clears throat> his behavior toward them it doesn't necessarily mean it in an ultimate spiritual sense. I'm absolutely pure as a winter of the snow, but <clears throat> I, didn't, I didn't do any harm to you. Exactly. So Paul's not in any way denying what he says about himself in Romans 7, which is in the present tense and, spe- and speaks of his uh, assessment of himself as a believer when he says, O oh, wretched man that I am. Um, he knows that to be true, but with regard to his conduct toward uh, the Thessalonians, he was blameless. He was not guilty of the things that he was accused of. Other questions or thoughts? So the criticisms of um, Paul take some specific forms here. And as I say, we're looking at Paul's response without knowing the other side of the conversation. But based on, um, on what Paul writes, we can, um, we, can get, we can have some very good guesses, if not some certainty, as to what their criticisms were. And so, first of all, there were criticisms of the message that Paul preached. Uh, So let's start reading, uh, uh, let's reread again, beginning with verse uh, 3, or verse 2. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak 
not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. And so, first of all, there was an attack on their message. Paul was doing... Paul's message, the critics were saying, is deceptive. And it might have been deceptive for one of two reasons. It could be that Paul actually believed the stuff that he was saying, but the stuff he was saying was wrong. Or it could, and so he was himself deceived. Or it could be that Paul knew that the stuff that he was saying was wrong, but he taught it anyway, and so he was not deceived, but he was nonetheless a deceiver. And so in either circumstance, he had a deceptive message um, that, had, um, that had been wrongly accepted by the Thessalonians. So in response to that, Paul says, I was not deceived, I was not a deceiver, but rather the message that I presented to you was the gospel of God. And so it was the good news, the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ that originated with God himself. If you want to attack this gospel, recognize that it's an attack on God because the gospel originates with God. And and I emphasize that because it's interesting that um, in the previous chapter, in verse um, um, 5, Paul wrote, because our gospel came to you which is it? Is it our gospel or is, is it the gospel of God? Well, it's both. Because it's the gospel that we've received that's changed our lives and our eternities. So it's our gospel. And yet we recognize that it's not merely our gospel. It's not, you know, we each have our own little gospel, which is kind of a modern way of thinking about things. I have my gospel and John has his gospel and we each have our truths and all that. That's uh, a modern way of thinking, but it's not at all what Paul is saying when he says it's our gospel. He's saying rather it's the gospel that we've received and because God has given us this news that has changed us, it's ours. But the emphasis here in chapter 2 is that it's the gospel of God. Yes, we've, we've received it, um, but it originated with God himself. And so, um, and so we are not deceived. We are not deceivers. What we proclaim to you is the gospel of God, the good news of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. So um, there had been an attack on the message, and Paul uh, responds to that attack by emphasizing that their message had not originated uh, on his own, but it had originated... Um, Uh, with God himself. Paul also in these verses has emphasized that the message did not change in spite of severe persecution. Evidently, the critics were saying in part that Paul was engaging in these missionary activities. And in Paul's day, just like in our our day, there were traveling teachers, televangelists, infomercials. Um, They didn't do the infomercials in Paul's day. But um, there were the same kinds of activity where somebody was hawking something, including a religious message, um, in order to make a profit. And so they had these kind of traveling teachers in Paul's state, Paul's state, too. And you know, one thing that we have to say about it is, is if that was what Paul was doing, he wasn't very good at it. 
So he didn't end up making a lot of money. He ended up getting thrown in jail and beaten up a lot. Um, and so, you know, if he, if he really was um, out for something for himself, he did a poor job at it. Um, but in spite of the persecution, Paul's message didn't change. He had gotten thrown in jail in, in Philippi for preaching Christ. Um, when he left Philippi, he came to Thessalonica and he preached Christ. And he continued with the same message everywhere that he went. And so um, the message was constant in spite of persecution. Um, the, the other thing is that the attacks on the message led to attacks on motives as well. And so in verse 4 we saw, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as uh, apostles of Christ. And so there were attacks on his motives. Paul had emphasized that, um, that they didn't uh, come with the message out of any, um, any goal of um, impurity. And I'm looking for the verse where that word is, and I've lost it. Um, there's actually a vagueness about that word, whether um, the accusation is that Paul was um, seeking um, sexual favors through his missionary activities, or whether he was, oh, it's in verse 3, or whether he was seeking some sort of financial uh, gain. The word is actually vague, but either way, that was the accusation against Paul. And so Paul defends his, um, his ministry not by saying in part, you, you know, you saw there was not any evidence of any of those kinds of goals for us. But then he also says that it's God that tests our hearts. And it, it, this is another important thing to keep in mind, that when we, either when we are criticized or when, other, or when we criticize others, um, nobody knows our hearts, and we don't know anybody else's hearts. Now, I will not say that it's always wrong to criticize motivations. There are some places in Paul's writings themselves where motivations are criticized. Sometimes motivations are so transparent um, that you know them. But, um, but you ought to be, I think that we ought to be cautious when it comes to criticizing the motivations of those that we disagree with. And let me explain what I mean by that. Suppose there's a ministry that I don't like. Um, I can say, well, his message is wrong. He's teaching the prosperity gospel, and that's not biblical. Or I can say, well, his methods are wrong. His, his methods are attempting to manipulate me to write a check when I don't want to write a check. So he's got, you know, God's going to kill him if, I, if he doesn't collect $8 million dollars. That sort of thing. So I could say his methods are manipulative. But it's a very different criticism if I say all he cares about is the money. He doesn't really believe what he says. All he cares about is the money. At that point, I'm not challenging something I can hear and see. I'm claiming that I know his heart. And maybe that person's made that so transparent that it's obvious. But what I will say is criticizing somebody's motives is low-hanging fruit. It's easier than it ought to be. And you see this in politics all the time. 
So it's, it's a lot harder to come up with arguments. I don't like what this person is saying. It's a lot easier to say, you know, all they care about is power. At that point, we've stopped um, looking at methods and messages, and we've started claiming to know the motives of somebody's heart. And that's easy to do. Several years ago, um, I, I heard somebody teach similarly to what I'm saying today. And it challenged me because I started thinking about how many of my own statements were focused on motives. Accusing somebody not of being wrong, but accusing them of being evil. Because if I say that, you know, I disagree with his political stance, I'm saying I think he's wrong. If I say all he cares about is power, I'm saying that he's evil. So it's a very different kind of criticism. And I started looking at myself and realized how much I did that. And then I started re looking at other things I listened to, the talking heads and the, the political columns and all that, and, and religious too, and realized it, it wasn't just me. This is the way a lot of us talk about one another. And I, I think that it poisons our political and religious cultures and I don't mean to intermingle those, I apologize, but for those of you that are interested in politics, we see this a lot, and we see this in, in religious culture as well. And I would just challenge you to think about um, the way that you, and I'm not asking anybody to change their views because the message is still wrong, right? If you disagree with them, the message is still wrong, or the methods are still wrong. But I, I think that we ought to be, at least be more cautious about attributing um, evil motives to people um, that we disagree with. And so Paul here says that it's God that um, tests the heart. Um, in defending himself, uh, one other thing that I think should be said that is important when we think about church, um, Paul here points out that if they were saying that, um, that he was uh, wanting to derive any kind of financial benefit from the uh, Thessalonians that, um, that they had known that that was incorrect. Paul here says that, we, uh, that you remember in verse 9, you remember, brothers, our labor, labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. This probably speaks to Paul's uh, tent making, his um, secular vocation, as the means of supporting himself while he ministered among them. And so evidently he did not receive remuneration from the Thessalonians, um, um, but rather he supported himself. Now we do know from Philippians 4.16 that the Philippian church sent gifts to Paul to support his um, ministry activities. And so he did receive some financial help from Philippi but beyond that, he seems to have worked um, a day job <laughs> uh, or a day, day and night job in order to support his missionary activity. Um, on the other hand, um, he does emphasize here that he could have, in, in verse 6, he could have made demands. And elsewhere, Paul emphasizes that, um, that, a, um, that a, uh, an elder, especially a teaching elder, is worthy of um, double uh, honor. So um, he's not denying at all that ministers uh, should receive appropriate compensation. 
And um, it is to be emphasized that if we expect our ministers to be trained and to be fully available for preparation to teach the word and for ministry of the, to the flock, then um, we need to compensate them. Certainly, um, ministers could be required um, to work other jobs. And I, I frankly think that we're going to see more of that in the future. Carl Truman, um, for those of you that um, read Carl's, uh, Dr. Truman's blog, um, has written about this a great deal, that he, he thinks that the day is coming when nearly all ministers will be bivocational, largely because of the increasing cost of benefits, and especially health insurance. Um, insurance benefits are becoming so expensive that churches that today can afford, um, afford a, a full-time pastor may not be able to um, soon. So, um, you know, churches can only do what they can do, but, um, but the emphasis here is that um, when a church can support a minister, um, they should, but in Paul's case, he um, worked himself um, to, uh, to uh, support his ministry. We're almost out of time, and I've managed to filibuster the whole hour. Very political. I, I did not. No, I don't want. Please. Is that a criticism I should respond to, or should I leave it alone? <laughs> oh goodness. Others. Just in closing, then a couple of lessons that I wrote down. Um, one is, it is not always necessary to respond to criticism. <laughs> It's on the paper. <laughs> but we should be especially aware when the gospel is at stake. Um, second, um, when we are criticized, and maybe I should take this to heart, when we are criticized, we should be willing to ask if we have been in error. We should not be beyond correction. If we are wrong, we should admit it. Um, and then finally, when evaluating others, we should be uh, careful about judging motives. Only God knows the heart. So um, if I was political today, I promise not to do it next week. And, um, and thank you um, for your uh, attention. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for, again for your word. We pray that um, in Paul's defense of his own ministry, um, that we have learned uh, something about um, ourselves as individual Christians and as a church. And we pray that these would be practical lessons that we could take to heart. In Jesus' name, amen.